You're on to another opportunity in a new organization, but what do you do in the meantime? On this episode, advice from a veteran executive leader on how to nail the transition. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 555. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversation. Of course, one of the things that we are navigating as leaders all the time is transitions. Transitions within our organization, transitions of others, and of course, we're navigating sometimes our own transitions. It's uh, one of those skills, and it is very much a skill, that many of us don't do a lot of. And as a result, nailing a transition is something that is uh, a bit tricky often. Today, I'm so glad to welcome a guest who's had just a fabulous career and is also going to provide a lot of insight for us on how we can nail a transition effectively. I'm so glad to welcome to the show Sukinder Singh Cassidy. She's a leading technology executive and entrepreneur, board member, and investor with over 25 years of experience founding and helping to scale companies, including Google, Amazon, and Yodley. Most recently, she served as president of StubHub, which under her leadership thrived and sold in 2020, right before the pandemic, for $4 billion. She is the founder and chairman of The Board List and has been profiled in Fortune, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week, New York Times, and many others. She's been named one of Elle's power women, one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company, and one of the top 100 people in the Valley by Business Insider. She is the author of Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. So Kinder, such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. I love the uh, subtitle of the book, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. And one of the things that I come away with thinking so much of looking into your career and reading the book is just how important family is to you. And you mentioned your parents in particular a bunch in your story. And uh, thinking about risks, I'm wondering what they taught you about taking risks. Well, you know, I, uh, you're right. I credit my family a lot, particularly my father, because he was a small business owner. Uh, him and my mom ran a joint medical practice together. They were both doctors for, you know, 30 plus years. But he really loved being an entrepreneur as much as he loved serving people. So, you know, he had us doing, you know, working with him on his taxes. I always say when I was seven or eight years old, I was like at the calculator with my father, you know, wow. doing ledger entries at tax time. I mean, by the time I was 12 or 13, I understood how to do his tax returns. By the time I was 17, I was doing them for him. And so, you know, what I saw was entrepreneurship was as small as, you know, like I said, letteringly handwriting revenues and expenses in a ledger. And then as meaningful as kind of dreaming about what was next. And my father dreamed about opening a walk-in clinic and he did it, you know, several, many, many years before it was like a major industry trend. And although he never sort of became a, a massive entrepreneur with lots and lots of financial success, what I saw every day was possibility um, being practiced in small ways and in big ways. Um, and I think it really influenced my view of risk-taking. Mm, indeed. And, uh, you know, one of the things that when I read through your book, one of the themes is transition. And I think like risk taking and transition go hand in hand, don't they? And absolutely. Uh, and, and it's really interesting how much transition you've had 
and how wonderfully you've thrived through transition. And and as people will discover when they read the book, obviously, many tough moments along the way, as there are for so many of us. And yet you have just found a way to really make that, if I might, a superpower for yourself of really transitioning well and nailing that well. And I don't think that's true for most people. Uh, As I mentioned in the introduction, it's something we don't do a lot of, we don't do every day. And so it seems like a lot of us struggle with it. If, If you notice that with folks? I do. I mean, I think, well, first of all, people struggle with choice. And a lot of the book is about, obviously, how to make new choices. And quite frankly, exercise choice every day to have more impact, right? Like exercise that wrist muscle. But to your point, any bigger choice accompanies a transition, a transition out of something into something. And I I think people... Yeah, are very jerky in their transitions. Does that make sense? And um, I've seen people jerky in their transitions and abrupt. I've seen people who like are overly long in their transitions because they're afraid to leave. I've seen people who kind of linger. So there's all sorts of, you know, challenges with transitioning. But yes, I don't think people generally do it that well. Yeah, and that's why this is uh, so much of the advice you have in the book. I mean, it's so key on this. Um, And in particular, how to nailed the transition well. And you've surfaced a couple of things you found in your career and talking with others that have really worked well. And I thought zeroing in on a few of these would be really helpful for folks. And you 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 touched on one a moment ago. And this actually, this piece of advice I think comes from Sheryl Sandberg, who said, don't leave before you leave. Tell me about what you learned from her in 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 kind of how to frame that transition. Yeah, look, uh, Cheryl and I were colleagues together for many years, almost uh, over five years at Google. We were peers and colleagues, and she had a great uh, and specific learning that she was applying to sort of women who were thinking about exiting the workplace, you know, to go have a family. But as an example, maybe weren't yet pregnant, but were already sort of imagining the day they would be. This is the context in which her advice was given, but I really generalize it in the book. And she said to them, like, don't leave before you leave. Yes, you may be thinking about having a child a year from now. But are you making decisions today, you know, that are really like for far in the future when that hasn't even happened yet? And what happens then is you sort of mentally detach a little bit. And I think this is one of the challenges in any transition. You can foresee a change is coming. And so you start to mentally detach from your current situation. But when you do that, a bunch of things happen. I always say to people, you kind of risk all the impact you've had at the current place you are. Because what we remember, you know, most about people is is in some ways not what they did, but how they leave. And so if you're starting to mentally check out before A, that choice has transpired, that already has risk. But even when you know the choice is coming in concrete, you know, part of the impact you have on an organization is the impact you leave. And so when you kind of mentally sort of don't put your best foot forward as you're leaving a job, you actually are working against all the impact you had on a job besides sort of mentally exiting a situation before you, before it, it's time to do so. So I think that don't leave before you leave is actually great general advice. And yes, I credit Cheryl for offering it at a very specific situation. But whenever I'm in a situation, even if I know I'm going to transfer, trying to stay present in those last moments is the way you kind of, I'd say, preserve and leave with high impact. People really do remember what you were like going out the door. And I don't mean you specifically, Sikander, but like all of us, that yes. last how we exit really does stick in people's memories, good and bad, I've discovered over the years. And I- I'm wondering how you have made that work for you. It-, it is really hard when you know a transition's coming, maybe others don't, to stay present. What's worked for you to stay present in those weeks or maybe months during those transition times? Well, I think this actually leads to sort of item number two, which is having a very defined time frame helps us 
maximize our impact while we're there while not overly lingering. So there's two pieces of kind of advice I would give to people. Number one, when I'm going to make a transition, I want to set myself a time frame, which is, I would say, manage between not having so much excess time that I'm hanging around doing nothing, which people also remember, and not having so little time that I leave the team behind me like literally screwed, you know, not set up for success. And often, you know, that time frame. And I always want to set a time frame in which I know I'll be busy till the very end. Do you know what I mean? But mm. we'll have c- accomplished maybe 90 to 95% of leaving a good situation with people that follow. And let me give you a good example of a bad transition. And of course, sure. this is what I mean about it sticks with us. I once had an assistant who'd worked with me for many years, many years, and was burnt out. And I completely understand that. You know, this is the way relationships and work goes, right? And decided to make a move to work for another executive, which I was very supportive of. But literally, I think over Christmas, this could well be the case, maybe told me on a Monday or a Tuesday that they were leaving, you know, the following week after like we had worked together many, many years and left me. And like, I mean, I know this sounds crazy to people, but with over a hundred thousand dollars in expenses that needed to be done because I was traveling like a fiend. I was an international executive. So on my personal credit card was literally, I mean, an unimaginable amount of expenses to be done. Wow. And literally like left it on my doorstep. And I remember saying at the time, I'm like, are you kidding me? I understand you want to go to this new opportunity, but can you not spend the extra week to help, like, to not leave me with a mess? It's one thing I already have to go and, you know, find a person to replace you. That's great. I'm very supportive of you pursuing, you know, your next career choice. But literally what you've left on my doorstep is a mess. It's hard for me to pick up. I don't know what the situation is. Like, I am literally out like $100,000. Like, I mean, this is a mess, <laughs> you know? And it was it was like, it was brutal. I just remember saying like, is this really the way you're leaving things with me after all the years we've worked together? And that's, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, we have since, you know, uh, I, I believe in repairing all of your relationships and we, you know, we've since talked it out and, you know, we are friends again. And, you know, I obviously wish her nothing but, but well, but it was, you know, in that moment, I was like, really, you've left me with a mask. So that's an example of an exceptionally bad transition, very abrupt, but that's okay. You know, I knew she was, you know, maybe burnt out and thinking about this. So all of like good with all the backstory, right? Good with the choice, good with the change. But that end moment, like it is what I remember, sadly, after, you know, seven years or of more and more of working relatively deeply together. So I think, look, coming all the way back to the question, I think your job is to define a time frame for yourself if you wanna, if you wanna be present. The way to be present is to be busy. Like literally, if you're present, you know, and busy, you know, if you're busy, you will be present, right? You just have no more hours in the day. And so I think it's about acting with urgency and setting a timeline that's maybe tight to transition. But that way, you know, up until the very end, your goal should be to set a time frame which you can deliver 95%, you know, uh, a great situation for the next group. Yeah, it really does benefit everyone. Um, I have a story on the other side where I gave six months notice at one point early in my career when I absolutely did not need to give six months notice. I should have given a month notice. And it seemed like the right decision at the time. It was one of the worst career decisions I ever made. And uh, I nailed the first part, which is I didn't leave before I left. I, I, I really worked yeah. hard but until the last day. Yes, you did I did. Yeah. And it and yeah. the the not leaving before I left served me well in the long run. That ended up being really yes. great at, on a number of things. But I absolutely lingered. And I got no attention from senior management or mentoring or yes. coaching in that last six months. And in in retrospect, it was really kind of a waste of time, of everyone's time. And well, you're hitting that other key, right? Which is when people know you're leaving, 
they become unemotionally invested in your success. Yes. Like, you know, they're moving on, right? They're like, well, he's not with us. So, you know, we also need to now to sort of manage our time appropriately. So to your point, your opportunity to have impact declines precipitously if you linger, right? Because you're just not included, right? And that's kind of very natural human behavior. When you know somebody's moved on, you yourself, you know, go through this kind of mental like uncoupling from that person, even emotionally, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, indeed. We And we all sort of know that, but we forget it when we're in the moment and it's us of really having yes. that defined time frame. And this is a good lead into one of the other points you have, which is, you know, I think one of the things that folks struggle with is whatever that time frame is, whether it's two weeks, whether it's four weeks, whether it's two months, where the transition is, is... And I've had so many people ask me this, like, what am I supposed to do for the next three weeks? Because mm-hmm. I'm, I've am i got a foot out the door. I realize I'm not going to be like a contributor going forward on things. And one of the invitations you make for folks is to leave more opportunity in your wake. Tell me about what you mean by that. Sure. So look, one of the you know, one of the ways we all know to have impact on our job is to do our job. But one of the other ways to have impact on your job is to create possibility for others. So when you were trying to leave well, you have the opportunity to set up more possibility for others. You have the opportunity to help identify who could be your successor. You have the opportunity to identify people with potential and, you know, and start kind of giving them some of your tasks that they would be excited to take on to grow their own careers. You have the opportunity to, you know, not just not leave a mess in your wake and leave sort of, you know, a clean landing, but you have the opportunity to create for somebody else, the opportunity to enter a situation and have the potential to succeed because you maybe know best, like what it takes to do your job and not only the obvious candidates to take it, but, you know, those who might be less obvious, but highest potential. So I always think that leaving possibility in your wake is not only about not leaving a mess, it's about giving opportunity to the people, you know, who you've had the opportunity to witness and work with and setting them up for more success. People remember that too. I mean, it's, as I said, our impact is not only what we do on the job, but how we leave it and how we leave it includes the people we create possibility for. When you reflect on some of your transitions in leaving opportunity in your wake, what's an example of a time that you found because of an action you took that that really opened up an opportunity for someone, for a team or an organization? Sure. Well, look, I, I was, I am, ironically, I always say to people, I replace myself everywhere I go. <laughs> mm. What? And I'm like, look, at the end of the day, you know, when I was at Google, my number two in the business was a gentleman named Daniel Allegra. And for many, many years, we had a very deep working relationship. He was one of the first executives to join my team to help build the international business. He was willing to do, and I profile him in the book, he was willing to do anything and everything to make us successful in building our international business, whether that meant being the first employee to relocate to China and literally open up our offices, or whether it meant taking on a new region or a new discipline. And so when I left, of course, I knew Google, or actually before, I was leaving, I, you know, identified for Google that I would be leaving maybe six months or eight months, you know, before I left. And that was because we were going to transition ownership of the region. We were going to split up Latin America and and APAC and, you know, put them in uh, and create APAC headquarters because it was time to be, you know, not centralized and create um, a LATAM reporting structure with North America. So I knew that there was this time where the, like the structure of the organization needed to change. And so I identified, hey, when this happens, I'm going to get rid of my own job. And so in that moment, we uh, ran two external searches, but very early on, I wanted to make sure that Daniel was in the running. And of course, he had the organization's respect, but, you know, in order for it to be a very viable search, like you want to run the external process as well, right? And, sure. 
And so I put my weight behind Daniel, although I gave everybody in my organization the opportunity to apply for the job and several other executives did. But I certainly ran both an objective process and I put my own thumb on the scale as not the person with the absolute final answer because my boss had the absolute final decision on who would take my job, but certainly weighted heavily in favor of the the person who had sort of I had given increasing opportunity to, because given that he so, like, was a remarkable executive, I just, throughout our time, just kept giving him new, new stuff to do, right? So by the time he was a candidate for my job, he had done virtually every job in the region and so was so well poised to take it. So that's an example. And then at Joyous, at some point, you know, I'd been six years running my own startup and I was quite frankly tired, but I didn't want to give up. And so we'd recruited a head of product and I said to the board, I'm like, our head of product should be our next CEO. I think he's capable of being a first-time CEO. He'll have my mentorship and support. And indeed, we promoted him to CEO when I was there because he was our highest potential leader and one of our most well-liked. And so as opposed to holding on to the CEO title, I felt no compunction or need to. I was like, my influence over the organization as the founder and chairman would be, you know, would continue. But I could really train him to be a, a CEO. And he's gone on since to start his own company and get it venture funded. So I love the fact that I gave him his first shot at being CEO because, of course, not because I'm so great, but because he deserved it Yeah, (laughs) and was, you know, and was showing all of the high potential characteristics, even though he'd never done the job. Someone made the point on the show years ago that the chief competency for every leader is succession planning. And I think we miss that a lot, not only in everyday leadership, but we certainly miss that in transition times. And there's just no shortage of opportunity in most transitions to coach, mentor, set up the team for success, regardless of role within the organization. And boy, it just, it, it leaves you and them and the organization in such a better place. Uh, and, Absolutely. Yeah. And we think that our influence goes away when we no longer are doing the job. Our influence is the people whose opportunity we accelerated and the organizations whose impact we are able to accelerate by virtue of the people we bought in, you know, and mentored and supported and, you know, and I said, gave more opportunity too. You make another invitation in this point, which is to tie up loose ends. And I think that that's something that not everyone thinks to do, or if they do think to do it, they think, okay, I'll let the next person handle whatever issue is going on. What's important about tying up loose ends? Well, I gave you the extreme example. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that I think that mostly when we think about tying up loose ends, think about what you want to inherit when you walk into a new job. You want to inherit the opportunity to think about what's new without spending all of your time you know, on the messy tasks and think about when you're leaving an organization, particularly let's say you're not leaving in good times, but you're leaving in distress. Are you leaving it for somebody else to have to let go of a team? Are you leaving it for somebody else to have to have a difficult conversation? The work of leadership is not, is never pure work. We almost never inherit a situation that's entirely clean, but our job should be to sort of try and leave for others what we would love to receive ourselves, which is, you know, the opportunity to start with the next new things as opposed to cleaning up all the mess that the person behind you just didn't want to deal with. So, uh, the, the, you know, in this the regard, the most important things are often, you know, the conversations that don't happen because the leader's like, well, I'm leaving. Yeah, I don't need to deal with, you know, this uh, non-performing employee or this, you know, situation that is out of control. I'll just leave it for the next person. And I think that's, again, that is part of the, the legacy you leave and the impact you have or the failure to have impact at the very end. So, I always think that we want to be, you know, to the very end of our transition time, creating the most positive impact we can. 
And if it's short, that's okay. You know, by the way, there've been many people who left in two weeks when I wanted them to leave in two months. Believe me, mm-hmm. you know, I've had that at a leader. I'm like, really, are you going to go in, you know, two weeks? I need you here for another month. Please, can you stay? And sometimes the employee says, I can't. But what I see in return is that literally to, you know, the day they're leaving, they are sending out emails and cleaning it up. And that often makes up for the sting of somebody leaving quickly, right? You're like, okay, like if I see that every day what you're trying to do is maximize your impact while you're here, while I would have liked you to give me, let's say a week or two weeks more, what have you, I completely have respect for the way in which they exit. And I think that's what, that's a key word, right? Along with impact, we want to, you know, don't destroy the credibility and respect you've gained with how you leave, you know, be as respectful of the people you're leaving as the, as the place you're going. Yeah. I think we forget that reputation and loyalty, you know, matters a lot. And loyalty can be shown in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. You know, it's more about, as again, your actions while you're there. Yeah, it really is huge of really um, tying up things well, like you said, leaving the kind of organization you'd want to inherit. And I think there's an element here, too, of I'm thinking about some situations I've heard from clients and in past years of like not creating any new messes either in the last you know, <laughs> few weeks that you're there. I, I've run into not a lot, but a few people over the years that feel like like once they've announced they're leaving, that's the time to like tell senior management about all the problems and surface a lot of issues. And it just seems like that is really a a poor choice in almost every situation. I'm sure there are exceptions. Yeah, yeah. But. It's sort of like, it's a little bit disrespectful. It's sort of like, hey, while I was here, I didn't have the courage to bring up these issues. But now that I'm leaving, here's all the things you should know. I'm like, well, part of being a great executive is, you know, dealing with the difficult issues when you're there, surfacing them. So yeah, like, look, I mean, first of all, when most people leave, sometimes we leave purely for opportunity and we're really happy. Sometimes we leave because we're seeking something we're not getting at work, which means like de facto we're unhappy. But I think the thing to think about before you transition is, look, if you want to have more impact where you are today, part of your opportunity is to speak up today, long before you even make a transition or new choice, right? Like, Try and have impact while you're there, not just while you're leaving. So to your point, many people are like, oh, now that I'm leaving, I can tell the truth. I'm like, actually, you could have told the truth while you were there too. You want to think about how to do it constructively, of course. And this comes back to people's fear of like what happens if they tell the truth when they're on the job. And I understand sometimes it's unsafe, but sometimes the unsafe is in our head, right? As I said, I'm not talking about situations where you're deeply and direly, you know, compromised in a negative way. I'm talking about most situations, like maybe we're leaving something good for something better. Great. But you can still identify constructively while you're there, you know, the things that you can still work on improving. I don't know why we feel like the need to only be honest when we leave. I'm like, isn't our job to be honest when we're there too? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's, it's funny how we do, we get in these transition modes and we don't, we don't, often act in the way we sort of know better most of the time, and yet it does weird things to us. And I, I, I think some of that is like our society of just, our society has taught us all that we need to transition quickly. You need to end something yeah. and move immediately. And uh, and that actually is a great lead into one of your other points, which is middle steps before big steps. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you talk in the book about the hero's journey, and one of the themes is, and I, I love this point of the myth of the single choice. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that. Sure. Well, I think as it relates to middle and big steps, the book the book's premise is 
that, you know, success comes as a result of cumulative choice making and treating risk as a muscle rather than a one-off event. Like if you want to make one mighty choice, you put a lot of pressure on yourself that it must be perfect, that the consequences of success and, and failure are so dire from that single choice that we often end up never moving, right? When the opposite is true, between you and any reward is likely one, 50, 100 choices, each designed to kind of create a smaller outcome or to get, you know, a positive outcome or to get the learning that informs your next move, right? Or your next choice. So in that, in that paradigm, the same holds true when we're making transitions. Sometimes we're very reactive and we're like, oh, there's this opportunity. I have to go. And like, we make the big step kind of jerkily and reactively. And I'm like, well, actually, before you make the big step, consider all the middle steps. Like, and there are a bunch of middle steps, like often the middle steps, including brainstorming what you could do if you stayed. What could you do to change the situation? What are the opportunities where you are today? If you're not ready to take the big steps, taking the middle steps of researching all the possible new choices you could make before you just react to the one being given to you. So the irony of transitions is transitions sometimes follow a big choice. A big choice is sometimes no choice or the big choice when there are you know, infinite numbers of middle steps you can take. And so as I believe that you should maximize your choices before you make a choice. So I believe that like many times it's not no step or a big step, it's no step, middle steps, big step. And I've certainly used a lot of middle steps as I've particularly made big transitions. I mean, I will say to people, my transition out of Google was, you know, roughly speaking a year. And I probably made a dozen choices before, you know, small and big before I, I actually, you know, took a new job. And that was everything from sort of setting up my departure to going to a transitory place, a venture capital firm, to identifying the new industry I wanted to be in, to identifying the company I wanted to go to, to joining a board. I just like there were lots of middle steps before the final step. Yeah, we do. My wife always, uh, she's uh, comes on the show regularly and talks about the dangers of binary thinking of this all yes. or nothing, this uh, one moment, single choice that's going to make all the difference. And I suppose there are situations where that is maybe a little more true, but it seems like more often than not, it's really about the totality of the decisions we make over time that really do make the distinction of where the trajectory of our career goes. And if we can do yeah, that, yeah. well, that's yeah, right. That's and I think it's, I, I, we talk about this in the book, it's frequency, right? As as well as size of oscillation. So it could be small, 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 small step, small step, small step, middle, you know, medium step, small step, big step, you know, but all of those preceding steps are informing the big step anyway, right? So I wouldn't say that every step has to be incremental or every step has to be mighty. It's the frequency with which we make choices. And, you know, the choices before the big choice are often a good lead up to the big choice anyway. You've had a ton of transitions in your career. You've had so much success as a leader and a CEO and a businesswoman. As you reflect on the last couple of years, <laughs> what's something that you've changed your mind on? Well, keep in mind, I transitioned out of my last role during COVID. You know, we had just sold StubHub. I think, you know, I was the leader there and we sold it a month before COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So I spent my last transition, believe it or not, restructuring a company after a record sale in some of the most dire circumstances. So that was for whatever it's worth, my last transition, which was a pretty uh, harrowing one, yeah. um, but all good. But to ask you what I've learned, well, my, you know, my last two years have been in this period of COVID. And I'll tell you one of the things I learned that... I've changed my mind on. My husband told me for so many years that this idea that I had to travel as much as I do to spend an hour and a half in the car, you know, each day to go do my job 
was like my kind of myth, right? Of the choices I had to make to be a CEO who's effective. And my husband would say like, I don't know why you're wasting all your time doing this much traveling and commuting. And guess what I learned during the COVID time period? There has A, been a cost to all that travel and B, yeah, I mean, if I think about whether or not I need all of those things to be effective, I absolutely do not. I need some of them, but it's not nearly as much as I thought. And I see the cost to, you know, of, of my own personal happiness and having, you know, presumed kind of very binarily what it meant to be an effective CEO in a pre-COVID time period versus what the pandemic has taught all of us about, you know, our ability to have flexibility during our daytime hours and how we do our job a huge learning for me and a huge reset of my own sense of what it means to be effective. Sikinder Singh Cassidy is the author of Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. Sikinder, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 302, How to Challenge Directly and Care Personally. My guest was Kim Scott on that episode. Kim wrote the foreword to Sikinder's book, and I enjoyed reading it. And it reminded me of that valuable conversation back on episode 302, as Kim calls it, radical candor, the ability for leaders to be able to both challenge directly and to care personally. Uh, She has a book by the same name. It's now in a new edition out. It's a wonderful book for your bookshelf. So many comprehensive principles there for every leader. Episode 302 for that. Also recommended as episode 499, The Way to Make Better Decisions. My guest on that episode was Annie Duke. She walked us through a decision tree of how to really think about decisions much more effectively than just that that old uh, plus minus list that many of us used to use when thinking about making a major decision. Uh, instead, Annie just really challenges us to look at decisions much more holistically, to play out probabilities, and to be able to think about that much more proactively and strategically. And of course, when it comes to careers and making decisions, there are so many different variables of us to be able to think about decisions much more holistically. Episode 499 is a great starting point for you if you are thinking about what do decisions look like in the future and how do I play the long game. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 526, Making the Case for Your Promotion. May Bush was my guest on that episode. We talked about her career and her success of working at Morgan Stanley, going up to one of the chief executive roles, and uh, how to actually make the case internally. Maybe you're not thinking about a transition externally, but you're thinking about how do I make the case for the next position inside the organization. Episode 526 six is a great process and class on how to do that and where to begin. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. You'll find this episode filed under career growth. We've had so many conversations over the years of things that not only will be helpful in your career, but also maybe the conversation you pass along to one of your peers or colleagues or perhaps employees. If someone, for example, you know is handling a transition right now, this conversation may be useful to them. So many other episodes over the years that you can find under career growth that will be helpful to you. And if you'd like to get access to the entire library since 2011 sorted by topic, just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. That's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes. It's also going to give you access to my entire personal library. All of the links, episodes, articles, 
videos that I find each week that I pass along in the weekly leadership guide. Those are all database. You can search them by topic inside the website, plus all the free audio courses. And of course, you'll get the weekly leadership guide coming each week where I found the most recent episodes and resources that'll be helpful to you, including the episode notes from every episode on this show. All of that you can find and get access to right away just by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome to the show Jody Ann Bury. She is going to be challenging us on how to end imposter syndrome. Perhaps you have felt imposter syndrome or maybe have identified it in someone else. She is going to be making the invitation to us on how to end imposter syndrome in our organizations. Join me for that conversation with Jodi Ann next week. Have a great week and see you on Monday.